but I am a hunter. That's the one thing I learned in the island, the one thing I'm really good at. That's what I forgot, the basics. I'm Eddie Webb, and today we're going to talk about Green Arrow the Longbow Hunters, issues one through three, here on Speechless. Welcome to episode three, season two of Speechless. Um, I'm going through uh, various bits of the Green Lantern comic, or rather, Green, Green Arrow comics, uh, to kind of get a sense of who Green Arrow is. And uh, I'm still coming off the uh, last episode where there was kind of an overlap with uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow. Uh, but um, we are now going to skip. All the way ahead to 1987, so this is about uh, 17 years, and it's a pretty big jump. But uh, this is a really big moment in kind of Green Arrow history, from what I can tell. Uh, so, last episode we talked about how Green Arrow was moved from the Justice League of America book into the Green Lantern book, and they kind of reinvented him to be more Robin Hood, to have more social justice spends. Uh, uh, so on and so forth. We're seeing that again. But before I can kind of go into that, I think we need to talk about the time period specifically that DC is in and more generally comics are in. So uh, comics are actually in the 80s starting to, to kind of level off as a medium. Um, the... On the Marvel side, uh, they've been kind of dipping in and out of social consciousness, uh, but we're firmly into what is known as the Bronze Age uh, of comics. So um, some of the clear-cut Silver Age morality is kind of, of, it has been evolving. We saw some of that early movements uh, uh, in the last episode. We're now further into to that phase of things. Uh, but... Um, Comics were changing. We're, we're now at a point culturally where comic book collecting is becoming prominent. Uh, uh, comic book stores are a thing. People can order back issues of comics, and there's a desire to have back issues of comics. So they're not quite the purely disposable medium that they were even in the 70s. And more specifically, uh, both Marvel and DC are now starting to look at different actual physical comic book forms. Uh, uh, what, what at this time is being called the prestige format, where it's nicer paper, um, it's uh, square binding as opposed to staples, so it's kind of an, a, a more professional looking binding. Uh, it's not the the pulp paper uh, that was done. Other comics still fall in that model, but these are these are kind of additional comics to kind of explore the market. The graphic novel. That, that phrase is just being kind of kicked around. Uh, in particular, for two years prior to this is Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is huge. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Crisis on Infinite Earths was a then called a maxi series. It's basically a limited series that's more than four issues. Uh, and it basically reboots the DC universe. There have been reboots of characters before. But they were more kind of extra canonical reboots. We're just taking this character, we're doing a new thing with them. Um, that happened, for example, when DC acquired uh, some of the characters from Charles Dew Comics. Uh, uh, that was a pretty explicit reboot. This is the start of a few things. One is, is the idea of the in universe reboot, that, that there's going to be a story that leads us through to a new status quo. And second of all, this kind of maxi-series event comic is actually pretty new to the comic book industry's point. There have been events before. Um, in fact, the Christ on Infinite Earths line calls back to the Justice League of America comics because there had been, by this time, a, a regular tradition of a Crisis on Earth 1, Crisis on Earth 2, Crisis on Earth 3, where basically for an issue the Justice of America would cross over with their, their predecessors, the Justice Society of America, and have adventures. And it was established that the Justice Society of America adventures were actually happening in a different world. 
And so the like multiverse stuff has actually been around for quite a long time. And this, we, although they didn't use the word multiverse, that was the same idea that they're parallel earths and they could cross over and connect to each other. Um, so this crisis on is actually an homage to other event comics, but they were self-contained event comics. They were closer to things like annuals, which I talked about a little bit in last season. The, these kind of self-contained short stories. That if you if you didn't read them, nothing really changed in in the larger scheme of things. But also, even in the seventies, they were just starting to play with longer form storytelling anyway. So. Uh, by the 80s, uh, DC had come to the opinion that people were struggling to uh, get their way into the comics because there's so much continuity at this point, 40 years worth of continuity. And they felt like readers were getting lost because there's constant references and nods to that kind of continuity. Uh, which, interestingly, in retrospect, it seems a bit of an odd decision because the clerker market was just coming up. But I think their logic here was people were wanting to get this past history to understand it, where before they just didn't engage with it. Now they wanted to find it, and sometimes they couldn't. Uh, and that was potentially leading to frustration. So they wanted to kind of do a fresh start. And this idea was so innovative that uh, Marvel also did a maxi-series that was not a reboot, uh, but again, an event comic called Secret Wars. Now, it is hard to tell who came up with the idea first. The consensus view of anecdotes that I have found is that while DC was working on Crisis Infinite Earths, Marvel got wind of it and uh, Jim Shooter, who was the editor at the time, rushed out Secret Wars as part of a drive because they were also trying to get a toy line together. And Secret Wars was part of that. How much of that is them directly ripping it off? How much of it was uh, uh, kind of both sides were thinking of the same thing. How much of it was market forces? It's kind of unclear, and it's been, now it's been so long that we'll probably never get a firm answer. But it is important that both were seeing that these are big events. DC was willing to take a little more time. Um, uh, they, 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 they were more careful with this. But what's interesting about Crisis Infinite Earths is that it did do one of two, it did two, two things. One, it was actually a jumping on point for a lot of new readers. Uh, a lot a lot of new people did start picking up DC at this time. The other is that a lot of people didn't, a lot of people jumped off. A lot of the older fans didn't follow through. They were frustrated by Crisis on Infinite Earths. And we'll see the cycle repeated as DC does more reboots than online. And we'll actually probably touch on one of those near the end of this season. Uh, but what's really fascinating about Crisis on Earth and how it relates to Green Arrow is that it wasn't a hard reboot in the sense that everything stopped, Crisis on Infinite Earths happened, and then all new comics started. That model did happen later, uh, particularly the New 52 era of DC. But for this time, it was more like a rolling reboot, and also some things didn't reboot at all. Uh, for example, Marv Wolfman. Uh, was writing the Teen Titans comic prior to this. And aside from the Teen Titan comic ending and then restarting the number, number one again, it didn't really change. A couple of costumes changed, a couple of minor details changed, but generally speaking, it was the same comic and it was the same continuity. So you pick up and then you start with the next one. Um, so there wasn't really a, this is a whole new team and we have to go through a back history again. It's, it's just the same team. They just keep going. Uh, also was that some of the reboots came later. Like uh, Superman did reboot with the Man of Steel soon after this, but Wonder Woman didn't do her re reimagining until about a year later. And uh, some comics started fresh from this, and they were completely reimagined. Suicide Squad, I think, probably being the most obvious example because it was a very different comic before and after Crisis. But also, some things were changed just enough to fulfill the status quo, but didn't really substantially change. Uh, so again, uh, uh, Superman and Wonder Woman were pretty substantially changed, primarily because they wanted to adjust power levels. And also uh, in cases like Wonder Woman, their, their continuity has gotten really kind of convoluted. Batman more or less stayed the same. Uh, and 
uh, again, to put this kind of in context, uh, the Batman 89 movie is about to come out. So there was probably a hesitation to mess too much with that. Also because they were still getting reruns of the Adam West show. So Batman was the, the crown jewel at this point and going to become even bigger. So where does this leave Green Arrow? Uh, Green Arrow was one of the later people to get rebooted. And so we're two years after Crisis. Uh, and as we're going to see, he's in some ways not that far changed from the 70s Green Arrow. He's still Oliver Queen, still uh, goatee, still wears green. Um, but also we're going to see an Oliver Queen here that's a lot closer to, say, the Arrow TV show. Like When I read this, I was like, oh, this is where the Arrow TV show gets some of this stuff. Because again, that was my kind of primary uh, window into Oliver Queen. So uh, uh, we're getting even more into the, the Robin Hood homage, and it's going to be explicitly clear in this comic, uh, whereas before it was kind of like just kind of, oh, yeah, you get it. Um, his costume changes, which is pretty common for this, these kinds of reboots, uh, but also he abandons his trick arrows in favor of conventional archery weaponry, and he moves from Star City to Seattle. So it was very much a let's get him – out of context and go back to basics, like like the line I, I led. That was almost uh, uh, not quite for wall breaking, but I mean, certainly it acts as a good mission statement for this comic, which is get him down to basics. Not the basics of the characters originally written, but the basics of what they want the character to be now. What's interesting to me is that where they landed is pretty close to the Matt Fraction Hawkeye run. It is very street level. The idea that this is the unpowered superheroes, so putting him into real-world contexts and, and making that again, a very gritty crime drama thing. Uh, uh, this three-issue miniseries did lead into an ongoing series, which I believe is his first and, and probably his most well-known, the one that is written by Mike Grell, as his miniseries is. Also, this was, again, prestige formats. There's double-sized issues. There were uh, uh, produced on slightly better paper, and there were, I believe, square bound. Uh, I've read these digitally, but my, my research tells me that that's kind of the things that happen. So these were meant to be a big deal in terms of, you know, look at all the, the money we're putting behind this, this reimagining of, of Green Arrow. Uh, so um, let's get into it. Uh, uh, the, the creative team, because there's only three issues, uh, they are the same throughout. Uh, and it's pretty much Mike Grell. Uh, Mike Grell is the writer. He was one of two pencilers and one of two inkers. Um, uh, Lorraine Haynes also uh, penciled and inked, uh, listed as an assistant pencil and assistant inker. Um, I have been missing coloring and lettering because it was really hard to get those credits uh, pre like the mid seventies. But now we're starting to get those credits here, so I'm gonna start including them. So colors by Julia Lacomont, uh, letters by Ken Bursniak, uh, and edited by Mike Gold and Robert Greenberger. And once again, thanks to the DF Fandom Wiki for getting all this information because it's a huge, huge, huge help. So I'll start with book one, The Hunters. A killer known as the Seattle Slasher is on the loose after climbing an 18th victim. Meanwhile, Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance are just finishing up unpacking in their apartment above Dinah's flower shop. Suddenly, a 17-year-old girl crashes through the door high on crack. Oliver and Dinah get her some help and discover the girl may have a lead on the cocaine trade. Dinah decides that she'll work on the case by herself. Oliver expresses sadness at the end of his glory days as Green Arrow and his age, knowing that his ward, Roy Harper, has had a daughter, which practically makes him a grandfather. Despite his feelings, Dinah dons her old black canary costume and the two make love. Afterwards, Ollie proposes, but Dinah seems hesitant. He explains that he's been struck by his mortality and wants children of his own. Unfortunately, Dinah doesn't want children because she fears for their safety. Elsewhere, the Seattle slasher strikes again. On Oliver's birthday, Dinah gives him a new redesigned costume to wear as Green Arrow. He soon goes out on the streets to investigate the Seattle Slasher's murders, where he stops a mugging and questions the thugs. He follows leads to where he believes is the killer's hideouts, finding news clippings that suggest the killer is a Vietnam veteran who never stopped killing. As he investigates, the killer returns, knocking Green Arrow to the floor and setting the building aflame. As Ollie recovers and attempts to track the killer before he strikes again, it appears there's a link between the killer and several assassinations of political figures involved in, in a conspiracy. As Oliver closes in the killer, he becomes witness to the killer's own murder as a mysterious female archer kills both he and his accomplice before escaping. The next day, a newspaper headline suggests there is a Robin Hood killer on the loose, and that the killer's netted victim, though saved, was murdered anyway by her pimp, and was blamed on the Seattle Slasher. 
Oliver was confounded by the lack of answers despite the end of the slasher's killing. So uh, another piece that I, I didn't talk about before I dove in, and I probably should have, is that um, this is the height of what was called uh, the DC Comics Not For Kids era. It was a slogan they put in a lot of their comics. They were trying to definitely do more adult comics. I mean, Watchmen comes out this year, 1987. So uh, DC's definitely playing with the formula. And for those who are familiar with comics, we're actually six years away from the release of Vertigo where all this stuff ultimately gets kind of compartmentalized. Now, we're seeing it happening in the DC universe alongside the regular DC comics. And it's not like all of DC is like this, right? Because simultaneous to this, you also have things like uh, Justice League International, which is a hilariously funny comic and is much more in line with kind of The Office and Silver Age comics than this. So these are all kind of existing in the same moment. Uh, Marvel would much more kind of bifurcate these things like the Marvel Knights imprints and uh, you know the Max line. This DC is kind of just throwing these in here. And, and this is peak 80s edginess. And there's a lot of stuff there that just hasn't aged well uh, and certainly bugged me. But... Uh, one thing that's interesting about this from a visual perspective is that we do have Mike Grell, both as writer and artist. And so there's definitely pieces where um, it, it's about what will look interesting on the page. And so the story is sometimes wrapped around what's visually interesting. And I always find uh, when the conflict creator is both writer and artist, how that shapes the comic. Uh, I have side note, but I've been reading manga a lot lately, and that's much more common in manga, where it's just one person kind of driving it creatively on both sides, uh, where as opposed to American comics, much more kind of a team effort. And here, um, I talked in the 70s how there was a lot more about playing with panel placements and visual layouts. Uh, here we start off with two two-page spreads, uh, which already is interesting. Uh, a a two-page spread was very rare in the, almost never exists, omnipotent in the 60s and rare in the 70s. Now we have two back-to-back here. And also, there's something that is now much more common, uh, but was relatively new in the 80s, the idea of depth of panels. So if you look at the very first spread in issue one, you have this kind of the very first panel is a, is a kind of a skylight of Seattle, but then the other panels of the page are almost like layered over top of it. So that way, between the panels lower on the page, you can see bits and pieces of that first panel. So it's almost like they're like pictures scattered on top of it. And in fact, the last panel on this two page spread is cocked at an angle like it to get a photo dropped on top of these other panels. Uh, and that kind of physicality of interacting with the visual storytelling is something that's going to be, you're going to see a lot through this and certainly throughout uh, uh, um, this, this era of comic book art in America. Uh, interestingly, if you contrast this with something like Watchmen, which is so firmly put onto a nine panel grid, but that's because that Watchmen is specifically trying to send up silver age and even golden age comics with, with those tight grids. So that was a very specific uh, aesthetic by Dave Gibbons, and I will talk about. Maybe I'll talk about Watchmen another time, but I only bring it up for contrast because it is contemporary to this. Um, but also, we are seeing like first two page spread is a woman who's basically in her panties and nothing else. Um, her hair is very tactfully covering up her breasts. Uh, you see uh, someone smoking. You see someone stabbed. There's blood drops all over the page on the next two page spread. Uh, the it's it's. Mike Girl's sending a very specific message about what this comic is going to be. It's going to be much more in line with uh, R-rated 80s action and even horror films than with comics as people perhaps are aware of them. Uh, so, um, other than that, uh, uh, there's also Mike Girl's interesting technique of when he wants a character to be introspective is that uh, he actually changes the art, the, the art style entirely into more of a charcoal drawing. You see it on uh, the bottom of page seven where Oliver Queen is kind of talking to Diana and there's a whole quarter page panel. It, it looks like it's just a, a kind of almost like chalk on a gray background. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a, it's, you can sell it's the same artist, but it's such a different medium that it, it sells that introspection in a very different way, which I find interesting. 
Uh, but this is very much an 80s comic. Um, the fact that crack is a plot point uh, is peak war and drug 80s. Uh, in DC's defense, as we as we saw last last episode, um, they have pretty steadily been building up uh, the you know their 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 relationship with drugs. So this is not new to them. Uh, the fact that it's done so casually is perhaps a little shocking, but DC readers at the time probably wouldn't have been as surprised by it as opposed to Marvel, which had generally stayed away from those topics. So when they introduced it, it was much more of a of a of a shock. Um, but uh, there are you know, scenes of, of, of sex that are, again, R-rated film level. Uh, so, I mean, like, you don't see the act, but it's not just two people walking into a bedroom and a door closing. You're, you're, you're much closer to the action, if you will, than anything else. Um, another note is on page 13, we have another of those kind of charcoal drawings, but also uh, Oliver Queen is hanging up a picture of Robin Hood, and uh, uh, the colorist actually works in brush strokes into the coloring of just the painting he's hanging up to make it look more like it's a painted picture, which is a nice, nice touch. And in fact, all of the coloring is really deft. We are not to the age of computer coloring yet, so this is all still hand coloring, but it's much more detailed coloring than we usually see. It looks like it is uh, hand painted or at least hand drawn. Um, if you uh, look at the two-page spread starting on page 14 where Oliver Queen, there's a light shining on the side of his face and there, it's, uh, there's the shadows, some of which are inked, some of which are drawn in kind of a darker flesh tone, but then there's white shading along the ear and the side of the face that looks like it's actually kind of chalked in. Uh, and then his, his green shirt at the same time, um, there, there's uh, the, the black inks, which was traditionally used to indicate shadow, but then also there's different shades of green in that shirt to add even more layers of shadow and texture, which is not the kind of coloring you would be traditionally seeing even in 87. 87, it's it's more refined than 70s coloring. It's not as flat as 60s coloring, but certainly this is almost painted look, um, something that happened a lot in, like, say, British comics at the time period. Uh, painted comics were actually pretty common in, in British comics in the 80s. So maybe some, as British artists came over, they may have started bringing that influence into these comics. But we have um, Oliver talking about his time on the islands, which, as I understand, this is the first time we actually see this particular backstory. Um, and this is really where I started to get the, the Arrow TV show vibes from in the sense of, you know, the fact that he was on the islands and fought to survive. And that's where he picked up his skills and also where he picked up his refusal to die or refusal to kill. And his social justice all kind of comes through this. We see a nod back to uh, the story of uh, Speedy being a junkie. Um, in a panel that will probably be repeated many, 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 many times. Uh, and then um, Black Canary comes out in her costume that we actually saw in the 70s. He Oliver refers to it as, as the old costume because uh, in between this, um, Black Canary actually had been in Justice League and in a couple of other books, and she had a different head-to-toe costume um, that covered her completely head-to-toe, I should say, with a headband. And then it was jettisoned to make room for this costume in this. Although it's only shown as a way to get Ollie aroused, which is weird. But again, um, we're at a stage where people are trying to tell stories about comics and playing with the tropes. And sometimes they haven't aged well, but I at least respect the attempt, right? It's like, can we do something more adult with this? But the, the definition of adult is still pretty rudimentary. Uh, and again, we see another... Uh, uh, close to explicit sex scene, um, murder scene. We're seeing more of these kind of charcoal drawings. Um, we have the, a, a conversation about Oliver getting older, which is another interesting point. Uh, we're hitting the era where comic timing for big publishers, long running publishers gets a little wonky. Uh, if you look at say fantastic four in the sixties, they very much were like, if, if an issue happened in 61, then another issue happened in 63, two years happened between those issues. So real-time match to comic book time. Then it started to slow down a bit. Like, for example, uh, Spider-Man took a little more than four years to graduate high school and then took a little more than, a lot more than four years to graduate college. 
Uh, so you start getting a decompression of time where it's like, there's so much happening in these comics and they're also following on from each other so much that time kind of stretches out. And then uh, here at the eighties, it stretches out even more. And then at a certain point in time, Time just has no meaning. Characters don't actually get older unless the plot requires it, even though things like technology and pop culture references do evolve and change. That's just kind of comic timing for these big comedies. The fact that Oliver Queen is specifically mentioned as being older and a later issue, we'll see, he simply says he's 43, is interesting because it's a sense of growing and changing that we don't usually see in these kinds of characters. So, uh, if we assume that these uh, time, Green, I mean, Green Arrow can't actually be 43 because it's been about 40 years since he first appeared. But using some of that stretching, it's not that far to assume it's been about 20 years since he probably started his career as a crime fighter. So it's, it's an interesting way of looking at how uh, things evolved. Uh, again, um, on page 29, uh, as uh, the but well, we're still known as, as the Robin Hood killer uh, is is killing someone. Uh, the, the arrow is going through the chest, and there's blood spouting out from the wounds, dropping from the mouth, dropping from the arrowhead. We're going to see some form of arrow covered in blood through a lot of these there for several issues. Uh, but it, I, I want to point out, like you know, we're, we're definitely seeing a, a, a mark up in terms of violence. But also on that same page, it's it's a throwaway thing. But there's one panel of Oliver working on his bench, working at arrows, and then there's a trash can in the foreground. And you see like the boxing glove arrow and the boomerang arrow, and they're all in the trash. So it's not an explicit the trick arrow era is over, but it's, it's clear that that's what the intention is. Oliver is going back to basics. He's just using a bow and arrow. He's not using the, the, the wacky arrows. So all that fun tracking of trick arrows, we're done with that for the time being. I do believe they come back. Um, but I mean, other than that, I mean, from a visual perspective, we're seeing lots more like um, introductions of of clipping of new, newspaper clippings, and as opposed to uh, hands drawn newspaper clipping, which is pretty common until this point, we're actually seeing newspaper clippings that are mocked up like they're on newspapers. So they're using newspaper fonts. Uh, they're they're not hand drawn fonts, but they're actual like you know. Uh, uh, Physical, uh, created fonts from from a device um, interposed with hand drawn photos, if you will, from these these things. Um, also, uh, there's a great little kind of collage uh, at the bottom of page thirty seven, where there's like little arrows or sorry, um, medals interposed with with pictures of the the kind of Vietnam conflict uh, to kind of sell what this person was like through artifacts rather than through dialogue, which is an interesting touch. Another one is on page 39, um, when the house gets set on fire, uh, the right side of the page actually has flames licking up it. So you can kind of almost see the fire spread across the page, which is a really, really cool effect. Um, and then we have a picture of, of the, the assassin. Um, who has was completely covered except for her her arrow arm, which is covered in tattoo. It's peak eighties obsession with ninja era. Um, so I mean, how Japanese women are portrayed in American media at this time period is a whole lot. I'm not qualified to talk about it, but suffice to say, it's it's a trope. It's a, it's it's a thing, um, uh, and, and it's 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 very much Orientalism, but. It is a staple of the time. So, I mean, you have to just kind of accept it if you're going to read these comics. Uh, so, I'm going to issue two, which is Dragon Hunt. Mr. Magnor, Mr. Cronin, and Mr. Osborne are arguing over what to do about someone snooping into their affairs. When Mr. Osborne leaves in frustration, Mr. Magnor reveals that several of their associates have been killed by a black arrow, meaning that their past has come back to roost. As Mr. Cronin leaves, he too is killed by a black arrow from the bow of a mysterious female archer, what we saw at the end of the first issue. Elsewhere, Green Arrow attempts to tip off the police to the nature of the Robin Hood killer, providing evidence that the killer may be a woman. Together, he and the detective theorize there is a military connection between the victims. So the police aren't convinced that the Seattle slasher is dead to Oliver's annoyance. As he leaves, an officer inadvertently tips him off to Cronin's murder. After stopping a mugging, Oliver returns home to find that Dinah Lance has left to investigate and lead in the cocaine trade. 
Oliver sadly goes to bed alone, haunted by memories of her rejection of his marriage proposal, saying that he had no desire to have children. Before returning to investigation in the evening, Oliver checks up on Dinah, but thinks better revealing his presence. As Green Arrow, Oliver is surprised it takes him little effort to come face to face with the killer herself. He threatens her with his bow, but she can see in his eyes that he isn't a killer. He fires an arrow past, she fires an arrow past his head, and he attempts to subdue her, but he is overcome easily. Demonstrating her skill, the arrow that missed Oliver manages to strike her real target, a man in the street below. While recovering at home, Oliver overhears a newscast which indicates that the man he saw dining with earlier has been found dead in a dumpster. He investigates and a bartender divulges that the man has connections with Magnor shipping. When the Green Arrow stakes out Magnor's place, he overhears that Magnor's men has responsible for the drug dealer's death. He also discovers where the man he believes has kidnapped Dinah is hiding. Dinah is being held and tortured in a warehouse in the docks by a man named Jankowski, wanting to know who she's working for. Oliver soon discovers him, and as Jankowski is about to do more damage, the arrow flies straight through his chest. As Oliver rescues Dinah, he notices that Shadow, otherwise known as the Robin Hood Killer, is fighting alongside him. Oliver gets Dinah to safety as the warehouse explodes. She apologizes for missing his birthday as Shadow walks away. So, um... I'm going to kind of jump to the big uh, elephant in the room, if you will, in this book. Uh, uh, we have an instance of what is now known as fridging, uh, which is, if you don't know, uh, where a female character is imperiled specifically to give the male character motivation. Uh, amusingly, the name fridging comes from a different DC comic, specifically Green Lantern, and the actual issue it's referencing won't come for another few years. So it's kind of proto-fridging, if you will. But uh, 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 in very mild defense of this comic, uh, uh, Dinah is presented as if she were, you know, she's a very capable martial artist and she can take care of herself. The problem is, is none of the issues comics actually show her doing that. In fact, the 70s comic was better about demonstrating her skill than this three-issue arc is. And uh, also we have the very unfortunate situation of she was not able to handle the people that her boyfriend, the man, could come in and actually solve. Although, again, in mild defense, Shadow does help with that. So it's it's another mildly problematic trope in this. Well, it's not mildly, it's it's fairly problematic in this in this. Uh and again, it's it's you know, also depictions of torture. Uh, when I went into this, I was also told that um, there may be depictions of rape, and a debate I debated not actually covering it as a result. But in reading it, I didn't see any of that. It's more kind of a threat from Yakowski. So uh, you don't, there's no depiction of it. There's no even implication it happens. It's more just ugly man threatening to do horrible things to a woman kind of things you see in fiction. So. If even the reference to it bothers you, then yeah, maybe you want to skip this this miniseries. Uh, but the other thing that's a little more interesting is there's a lot of talk about a military connection between them, and specifically the fact that these people might be members of the OSS, which predates the CIA. And this is actually there, there's a, a relatively recently I discovered this a surprisingly deep vein of espionage fiction in 80s DC. I have been reading uh, Suicide Squad, and while I'm finished with the the current Ostrander run of Suicide Squad, and through that learning that there's a lot of the socio-political relationship that America has with the rest of the world through the intelligence community happening in that. And it's also a pretty damning view on how America handles those policies. It also crosses over with Checkmate, which is a different superhero espionage comic that is sometimes working with and sometimes in conflict with the Suicide Squad. And then you have something like this, not touching either of those series, but it's showing that there's a very, very deep vein of sociopolitical espionage, what have you, storytelling happening all in the same kind of three to five year period of, of DC. So I, I find that particularly interesting as someone's coming to this stuff relatively new. I wasn't expecting much of that. Um, again, we start off with two two-page spreads. Uh, the first one, uh, the the back panel is just kind of, again, Seattle at sunset, but now that takes place, the entire two-page spread, and then the other panels are laid over top of that in increasing uh, stacking order. Uh, so more visual layouts, more uh, 
putting panels on top of other panels. In fact, on the next two page spread, there's three layers of panels. There's a big circular one, and there are four square ones that are positioned to be underneath those, and then another one with a spider web underneath the three of those. So that kind of playing with with a three dimensional uh, uh, layering as opposed to two dimensional flow is really really interesting. Um, we're seeing more. Strokes, uh, I talked before about the kind of charcoal look. Um, there's now some color versions of that, particularly when we're doing flashbacks um, with uh, shadows kind of training as an archer. And so uh, uh, they're, they're almost uninked. I mean, I think there's some inking happening there, but the lines are much, much finer, uh, which gives a very different look than the, the stronger, but still well done inking on the other panels. We also have a two-page spread, an eight and nine, where there's no dialogue whatsoever. This is increasingly common in the 80s. Uh, it was particularly changed, uh, of all things, in a G.I. Joe comic. Um, and that's something that I could probably do a, a whole series on if people are interested, is the Larry Hammer G.I. Joe run for Marvel, because it is surprisingly good for a toy comic. But one of the issues was uh, Snake Shadow, or Snake Eyes, who was a ninja sneaking into uh, a castle while being at followed by Storm Shadow, his rival ninja in uh, Cobra because it's the 80s. But the entire issue is told without dialogue. There's not a single word balloon in the entire issue. And you still follow the story completely through body language. There's a couple of panels where they're they're fudging a little bit to, to fit their conceit, but it's genuinely innovative storytelling for 86-ish when it comes out. So here we are a year later. A lot of artists and writers were inspired by that issue, and I think this is one of those inspirations we're seeing here. Um, other than that, um, oh, we also do see uh, Green Arrows. We saw it in the last issue. I didn't talk about it before, but his new uh, outfits, his new costume, we see it a little better here. Um, but the Again, the Green Arrow hood uh, very much inspired, I think, uh, the the first season, perhaps for several seasons, of the Arrow TV show. I keep seeing these little nods of like, I can see how this was probably one of the, either this comic specifically was a strong reference for the Arrow TV show, or this comic inspired other Green Arrow writers, which then inspired the TV show. I'll be curious to see as we go through the other comics, how much of... The stuff that's being set here gets dragged forward and how much of the stuff gets jettisoned because really we're now fully away from the 60s version. This this character is almost unrecognizable compared to the version we saw in the 60s. And so I'm glad we'd that stop in the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run to see a stage of the evolution. Um, but here I'm definitely seeing a further direction. Like, like this is taking that instinct of the 70s and pushing it to uh, a, a, I'm not necessarily a logical conclusion, but certainly a different conclusion. We're further into that evolution. Um, another interesting bit is uh, there's a scene in uh, pages 15 and 16 where um, there's a mugger that Oliver Queen beats up, but there's a loud radio playing at the time. And so uh, the lyrics, uh, the music's playing is kind of actually overlaid. It, it's just the outline of the letters. Uh, there's nothing in the body of the, the letters. Um, and they're kind of overlaid in between all the panels. So the idea that the music is getting loud, it, it's not interfering with the action, but it's certainly starting to get in the way of the art in places. So you don't lose track of everything, but the sense of the, the, the volume being loud and kind of dominating the scene really comes across. Um, again, there's another kind of, when, when Oliver's thinking to himself about uh, what Dinah said, uh, there's three pages, but there's not a lot of dialogue on it. Um, and that's actually another a good point is um, in uh, the 60s run we looked at, each of those issues were pretty self-contained. So uh, you picked up an issue, you read it, and you got rid of it. Occasionally there's like a two-parter. That was like a big deal. But otherwise, it was pretty much one and done. In the 70s, you had ongoing narratives, and something that you may have saw if you read along with the, the Green Arrow stuff, Green, or Green Lantern Green Arrow stuff, is that they kind of shoehorn in a way to recap the previous issues because they were still going from a newsstand model, which is there's a very good chance if you got issue 13, if you didn't get to the newsstand by issue 14, if the newsstand didn't order issue 14, if it gets sold out, if it got damaged, 
you might not get that issue and you might only get issue 15. And so you have to kind of learn from context what happened in the issue you missed. So they're always trying to find ways to, to recap. And some were more successful than others. Some were pretty clunky. Um, but it's, it's something that's largely fallen away now, especially uh, with the rise of collecting individual issues trade paperbacks. Now the recaps are usually done in a separate actual explicit recap page. Uh, here we're in kind of a transitional period because this was a limited series and it was expected that people would buy all three issues. But on the off chance that you didn't, it would actually recap some points. And they tried to do new stuff with it when possible. Try to make it a, a not as on the nose. And so this whole Oliver going back to bed and, and basically replaying the conversation about children here. It's also telling you about how lonely he is and the relationship with his dinosaur. You're learning something new about the character, but it is also more or less copy-paste dialogue from the previous issue because it's trying to recap in case for some reason someone negated issue one when they read this. Um, another dialogue page uh, on 22 um, of just Oliver busting in. There's a really great bit uh, of when the two of them are talking about the eyes of a killer. Um, yet you'd only see their eyes as they talk to each other. It, it's a neat little uh, thing. And the fights between him and Shadow, uh, well, fight conflict between them is, is both time and two-page spreads. So two-page spreads are becoming much more ubiquitous, uh, at least with Mike Grell in this run. I don't know if that carries through to the newsstand one because, again, because these were designed to be prestige format, which means no ads. There were very, there were not really any ads in these, or if they were, they were in the back. So didn't have to worry about where the page would land and where the ad would go. So two-page spreads are much easier to do because you know the pacing of the comic, whereas with the uh, newsstand comics, you know, if you got more ads that month, you may have to shuffle the pages around and try to get all the ads in. Uh, so this more explicitly kind of has the room to, to, to do these kind of big spreads that to perhaps the newsstand comics couldn't necessarily do. Um, even more uh, dialogueless stuff near the end of this issue, um, except for one word balloon. Uh, uh, there's Ollie, Ollie kind of going through things and then shoots dog with an arrow, which I'm not happy about. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, we have uh, the torture scene. Um, uh, and again, uh, it, it looks like he's really just torturing her. I, I, I don't see um, uh, anything about sexual violence. It's much more just, just grotesque violence. Um, she is sexualized, uh, which is a sadly extremely common trope for women in peril. That's, that's again, just a whole thing. Um, but again, a lot more dialogueless stuff uh, because Oliver Queen just isn't there to talk, isn't there to banter, isn't there to be funny. He's just there to hurt people. So it really, that piece comes across really, really well. Uh, so what's interesting is that these are pretty fast reads if you're just kind of flipped through and reading dialogue. But if you're looking at the, the pictures, it could be about the same time as reading a normal uh, run of those kind of issues. So it's the last uh, issue, Tracking Snow. Green Arrow has nightmares about recent events in which his girlfriend, Dinah Lance, was tortured, and he killed her captors in a rage. In the dream, a dragon appears, saying it and Green Arrow are one. Oliver wakes up at Dinah's side in the hospital, where he is asked to meet with Lieutenant James Cameron of the police. Cameron suspects a link between Dinah and Green Arrow, but lets it drop, instead sharing evidence that Dinah's torturer, Joukowsky, has been a military man, but had found a way to erase the record of it. Before leaving, Cameron reveals that he has evidence that two different kinds of arrows were fired at the scene, suggesting two archers, but he admits he can't prove anything. Later, Oliver investigates the nature of a dragon tattoo as seen on Shadow's arm. A tattoo artist explains the tattoo is related to the Yakuza, and Oliver infers that the tattoo was given to her as a child. In flashback, it is shown that a young Shadow was trained by the Yakuza in archery or to redeem her father's honor by killing the men who dishonored him. Meanwhile, Mr. Osborne grows impatient with his associate, Mr. Magnor. It becomes clear that Mr. Osborne and the CIA were offering Mr. Magnor's drug operation full executive protection as part of their dealings. Osborne warns the snooper that they had been concerned about Dinah may have survived and is a danger to the operations. As a security measure, he assigns Eddie Fires to deal with her. Fi Eddie Fires, F-Y-E-R-S. On the street, Ollie is accosted by a homeless woman who claims that she has a message from Shadow. She gives him the information for one room away. It appears, unbeknownst to Oliver, the homeless woman is Shadow herself in disguise because ninja. Oliver deduces the numbers and letters we were given were actually accordance for location in a national park. 
He tracks Shadow until he finds himself held at arrow point by her. She explains they have common goals, adding that she now sees the killer behind his eyes. She also reveals that their location will soon be used as a drop point for Magnor and Osborne's deal, and that she wants Magnor's life to restore her honor. Soon the uh, helicopter carrying Osborne and Magnor arrives. Osborne seems nervous about the drop, and uh, Fires is hidden somewhere with a sniper rifle, waiting for things to go wrong. The deal involves a trade of $350,000 unmarked bills for a large amount of cocaine. Osborne suggests the deal is meant as a way for the CIA to encourage democracy in Central America, though he is insincere. Green Arrow notes fires aiming at Shadow and fires a shot into the sniper's arm. The sound of fire's weapon going off spooks the deal below, and in the chaos, Magnor escapes into one of the helicopters. As the other helicopter attempts to escape, Oliver ambushes it, causing it to explode. Afterward, Oliver confronts Osborne as he is disposing of cocaine in the river. Oliver accuses Osborne and the CIA of conspiring with a drug smuggler to keep him in business while using his network to channel funds from the Iran arms deal to Nicaraguan Contras. When Osborne notes that there are no evidence, Oliver drops the bag of money on his feet. Rather than escape with the money, Osborne tells Oliver to keep it and walks away knowing he can't be implicated. Later at night, Green Arrow visits Magnor who explains that he and his associates had run a Japanese-American internment camp where they interrogated Shadow's father. He tortured his wife in order to find out the location of a large sum of gold bullion that was given to him by the Yakuza. They later found it and split it between themselves. Magnor thinks he is safe, but all of this has actually been a distraction, and Oliver Queen stands by as Shadow kills her last victim with an arrow. Later, Oliver returns to visit Dinah in the hospital. He apologizes for being upset that she didn't want children, saying the ordeal has made him understand her feelings. Still, they both wish for a safer world in which they could be safe for them to have children together. Oliver then reveals he kept the money that Osborne had given him. So, uh... And this is kind of the payoff of the previous issues. Again, peak, you know, Japanese honor and what nonsense. I'm not going to keep repeating that. Um, again, we have two two-page spreads to kind of lead off the issue. Uh, so, in Dinah, sadly, to recap, first issue, she was there primarily to have sex with Oliver. Second issue, she disappeared until she was tortured. And this issue, she's in the hospital. So, almost no agency throughout this entire series, which is a shame. Uh, the tattoo artist scene is interesting um, because this tattoo artist seems to know a whole lot about the Yakuza, and it almost makes this story work in the sense that he says a bunch of stuff, but like, well, she had all her fingers, she's this badass part of Yakuza, blah, blah, and you should. She, and, and also, he makes the comments of, if it was a woman wearing it, she's probably a concubine. She couldn't be a samurai. But this is an overweight, middle-aged white man saying this. So the story doesn't give either interpretation. But uh, uh, you could read that she was trained as a samurai. You could read that because she was not to be a samurai, she was trained in secret. Either of these things are possible. But it is it is. If it does not take any kind of retconning to look back and just go, this tattoo artist doesn't know shit. Uh, so um, some of it is still borne out through uh, the, the flashbacks, so it's not entirely dismissible. But it is interesting that the story kind of gives itself an out of like, this could be nothing. This could be this guy could be wrong, which I found to be actually somewhat interesting. Um, another interesting framing is there are a lot of two-page spreads in this final issue. And as they're kind of, as Oliver is going through and trying to find out what's happening with the cocaine deal, uh, on four of these two page spreads, there is a panel on the left and the right that are done in that kind of, like I said, lightly inked, colored, uh, almost kind of like uh, charcoal painting stuff. And that is all of the backgrounds for Shadow. So Shadow's story kind of being told alongside Oliver's. And while Oliver's stuff is, well, it's not Oliver's stuff. It's it's really the um, uh, kind of Osborne dealings, but those are all told in a relatively traditional panel grid. It, it's not. I mean, there's there's some overlaying and whatnot happening here, but it's it's a little more conservative compared to other two page spreads. And then you have them bracketed by shadows, almost like Shadow's story is edging in on Osborne's story. So visually, you're going to get that narrative of how these two are starting to overlap and eventually will over intersect at the end of the issue. It's a very cool visual touch that I do appreciate. 
Um, uh, and then we have uh, the confrontation between the two. Uh, that's told in a relatively straightforward action sequence. Although again, we see lots of pages with no dialogue. So, um, which I think for an artist writer combination, this makes sense because we don't have a division of labor. The artists doesn't feel like they have to tell their story in words. Uh, so, the, so as the writer, the writer part of him can ease up and let the artist part of him tell that story more effectively because it's, it's the same person telling the story. So, so there's much more confidence in let me just visually get this across as opposed to when it's divided up. Sometimes the, the, the dialogue or the caption box or whatever end up either jarring with or over explaining the action on the page. And Later eras of comics, this can be actually used for a really strong effect. A Watchmen actually is a really good example of the dialogue boxes intentionally jarring with the action on the page for a very specific effect. And that was a pretty early example of using that intentionally. There's a lot of unintentional Bronze Age overwriting or underwriting in terms of this. But because Mike Grell is doing both sets of duties, there's a lot more that he can do in just those captionless pages that a more traditional American comics team might not do. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, really, aside from that, uh, the the final panel being uh, Oliver Queen holding a bunch of stolen money is interesting. Um, and it's interesting for, for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, uh, Oliver Queen was rich and is no longer rich. That's something that he's actually not been rich now for probably two decades ish. So him no longer being rich, he's actually been poor longer than he's been a rich man in terms of comic continuity. And it plays into the overall aesthetic we're going here, which is that this silver age morality of I am a hero and therefore cannot kill has been overturned. Oliver Queen uh, kills people in defense of his girlfriend and then watches someone else get killed for someone's honor and because they're a bad person. So he is both a murderer and accessory to murder. And now he is a thief. Uh, Granted, the money was kind of given to him, but the money itself was also stolen. He was originally going to get rid of it. I mean, it's a gray area to be sure. But the point is, is that he, most heroes at this point would have given the money to charity or done something else explicitly noble with the money. He's not. He's like, I have the money. But it's interesting because as the reader, you can kind of see that. Like, you know, the shop has been broken. He had to rebuild all of his equipment. Um, you know, there's hospital bills now to pay. So that money would be useful for his life. So it's an interesting gray area, whereas compare it to the stuff like the last episode, which is very preachy and very ham-fisted because it needed to be preachy and ham-fisted to break through this time. Now we're moving something that's a lot, I'm not going to say subtle because it's not subtle. This is not a subtle comic by imagination, but certainly it's leaving room for discussion that previous comics didn't. Drugs are bad. Heroin will kill you. And the reason why people are going to heroin is because th- these kids are being treated terribly by their adult figures. That's There's no nuance in that. There's nuance here, even if it's not subtle. And there's a difference between nuanced and subtle, I think, here. Everything is so aggressively on the nose. But you can ask questions like, was Shadow right to do what she did? Um what is the role of government in these things? Uh, and of course, it's tying into pop culture things like uh, the Iran arms deal and Nicaragua. These are very hot button topics in the mid late 80s. Uh, there's also um, a reference, one thing I didn't kind of cover, but uh, um, the serial killer killing prostitutes was kind of an early subplot of it. And one of the points was uh, uh, maybe we need to get our gay women off the streets. And then there's that comment of with AIDS being a problem, that might be a good idea. So AIDS is also kind of referenced and moved away from. Uh, so 
there's definitely an attempt to try to make this much more flag of return ripped from the headlines, right? It's the, these are things that you have read in the news and now you're seeing it in your comic book. Uh, but where Oliver Queen is as a character, he is still retroactively looking back on it, still firmly coded as, as, as a hero, as a status quo character. But for people reading this in 87, this must have been a much more, I don't know if this guy is good or bad. Uh, the Punisher is just becoming a character in his own right. Wolverine's becoming a very popular character at Marvel. Uh, uh, I keep saying Watchmen, but Watchmen's another example. This, this morally gray area of where superheroes fall in real-world politics is a big deal. Suicide Squad is an excellent example of them constantly re-examining this point. Uh, so um, DC's really in enjoying this era of exploring these 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 range of of characterizations, and to get to the the goal of this season of podcasting, where does that leave Oliver Queen? Uh, and and the answer is I don't know. We're definitely moving him into. Uh, he went from. Batman knockoff, frankly, right? Like a uh, uh, conservative status quo, rich white billionaire fights crime to get his rocks off, effectively. 70s was much more explicit social outrage, questioning both the left and the right, but still pretty firmly in the left's camp. And now we're moving into the muddiness of the 80s, the late Cold War, where we're not entirely sure what anyone's doing and what the ethics behind any of it is, just that it all sucks. And even if one person kills a few bad people to try to make things a little better, it's still not great. Uh, so this kind of revenge fantasy, very street-level thing, is something that's, to my experience, reasonably new for DC. Uh, they, they did it in the seventies. Now they're kind of touching back on it again. I'll be curious to see where it goes and, and, and how it evolves. But Oliver Queen definitely is less a mouthpiece for white seventies liberal politics and is much more a character's own right where you can see maybe where he gets some of these things. Now you can start to, if you read this first and then go back to the 70s comics, okay, now I see why he's so mad about drug abuse, why he's so mad about how people are treated in, in the poorer parts of town, because he's lived in it and we could see the adventure. And certainly there are a lot of thematic connections between the Longbow Hunters and the Matt Fraction Hawkeye series in terms of a man with a bow and an arrow just trying to carve out a piece of something good for himself in a really terrible world. Uh, I still feel like the Matt Fraction run is better, but also it's 30 years, 25 years after this, you know, Mike Grell's trying something new. And frankly, he's pushing both artistic and uh, literary boundaries with doing this with mixed success. And again, it's really hard to do this at the same time that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons are basically redefining superhero comics forever. So it's naturally going to get lost in that. And there are lots of parts, and like I said before, have not aged well. Um, it, this was sometimes an uncomfortable read for the wrong reasons. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm glad I read this. I have a better sense of where the modern perception of Green Arrow comes from. I can see much more of the connectivity, and I continue to be fascinated at how Hawkeye and Green Arrow started off as kind of parody one started as a parody of the other and how as they each evolve and twist around, they continue to change. Because again, I talked about this a little bit last episode, um, but this is 87. So now Hawkeye is firmly in leading his own adventures team, right? So he is now in peak Justice League style Archer and Green Arrow himself has gone back the other way. He's basically a criminal. So now he is actually much closer to Hawkeye's original inception and Hawkeye's much closer to Green Arrow's original inception. So they have completely switched places in a cultural point, which is fascinating. Uh, but yet they're all also doing it in their own ways and with their own spins and their own directions. So it's it, it, they're not carbon copies of each other, but you can see kind of how they touch on each other and how they're clearly both each side is inspiring the other side. 
Uh, so that's it with it. Um, next, we're going to go into the 1990s into a crossover event uh, called Brotherhood of the Fist. Uh, so this is something that started off late in Mike Grell's ongoing run uh, and then crossed over into some Batman comics. So uh, we're going to look at Green Arrow issues 134 and 135, Detective Comics 723, Robin 55, and Nightwing 23. And again, if you're using the DC Infinite app, Brotherhood of the Fist is actually its own collection, so just read the collection, which is what I'm going to do. Uh, So with that, thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.